In this episode, I am once again joined by Eric Jampa Anderson, a Soa Rikpa healing practitioner, student of Tibetan Buddhism, meditation instructor, and author of Unseen Beings, How We Forgot the World is More Than Human. Eric discusses how he came to write Unseen Beings, and why he changed its theme from the spirit ontologies of Tibetan culture to the themes of climate change and animism. Taking climate change as his starting premise, Eric follows a traditional four-part medical model to make a diagnosis, and goes on to present his views on the causes and conditions, prognosis and treatment. Eric also grapples with moral and cultural dilemmas, compares animal testing in a medical context to hunting practices and animal sacrifices in a traditional context, and challenges the anthropocentrism of both modern culture and the environmentalist movement. So without further ado, Eric Jampa Anderson. Eric Jampa Anderson, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me back. Oh yeah, well, I'm so delighted to be speaking with you again. And today we're going to be discussing and perhaps celebrating the publication of your first book, Unseen Beings, Unseen Beings, How We Forgot the World is More Than Human, published by Hay House and available at all good bookstores. And all good bookstores at a bookstore near you. So first of all, congratulations on the publication of your first book. Yeah, thank you very much. It's very surreal still, but very exciting. Yes. And uh, how's the reception been so far? I mean, it's it's been great by by folks that have read it. I'm still very, I'm very nervous about it. You know, it's it's an incredibly vulnerable process. I'm used to teaching, I'm used to sharing content and getting feedback, both positive and negative from that, but I've never done anything on this scale before. Um, and I have a really hard time believing good feedback on something like this. So I'm sort of anxiously awaiting, you know, some of the more critical feedback, which I'm really looking forward to getting, because I think that's really important. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm waiting for that to happen. But so far, everyone that's read it has really liked it, uh, including some folks that I really didn't expect to like it, uh, which is very exciting. So yeah, it's been it's been good so far. Well, can you reveal the identities of any of these unexpected sycophants? No, no, just, um, not really. <laughs> it's it's mostly like personal, you know, friends and friends of friends who come from backgrounds that are very fundamentally different from mine, um, and you know, whose perspectives and worldviews are really involved in sort of the the collection of things that I'm trying to sort of deconstruct and like critically analyze in the book. Uh, but you know, so far, you know, folks have been really receptive to it and able to, you know, sort of take that in a, a very positive way. So, yeah, I'm excited. I hope that it reaches, you know, the kinds of people that it needs to reach uh, and that people find it useful and enriching in some way. I'm, you know, very conscientious that there will be certain people who will not like the book. And uh, a lot of those folks are people that I, I really don't necessarily want them to like the book. It is supposed to be challenging. Uh, it's supposed to, you know, get to the sort of heart of certain issues that we're facing as a society that I think people need to look at in a very sober way. And I'm expecting some, you know, dissonance and, and sort of backlash there. And, you know, I, I welcome that. But I hope for the folks that are really capable of making this jump, uh, that they're able to do it and that this book opens some doors and, you know, sort of new pathways for being able to experience what it's like to be human in a more than human world. Yes, indeed. And somebody might agree with your conclusions, but disagree with or have criticisms of 
the, the structure of your argument, for example, yeah. or some of the points, the fundamental points you make throughout, yeah. or they may disagree with your conclusions and like some of the points within. So I think that you cover a lot of ground in this book. And so therefore, I think there's a lot of possibility for both agreement and disagreement. Yeah, absolutely. You know, the crazy thing is, and I've, I've, I was talking to my friend Charlie Morley the other day, uh, who's another great author, he writes on and teaches on lucid dreaming, also a Hay House author. Um, but, you know, we were talking about this experience of, you know, writing a book and then submitting it for publication and then waiting for months and months and months and months before it actually comes out. And I was like, you know, God, there's, there's arguments that I make in the book that today I would make completely differently or certain arguments that I might take out and others that I would put in. And he was like, oh, no, that's that's entirely natural. And he told me, you know, about another author, a uh, more academic author who says, you know, yeah, every time I publish a book, by the time it's actually published, I disagree with half of the points that I made. I was like, oh, thank God, <laughs> because I wouldn't say that I'm I'm quite there, but you know, it, this is still a, a process for me. This is still a field that I'm actively engaging in. I'm actively doing research. You know, I didn't sort of close the book, finish the file, click save, and then put it to put it to the side. It's still something that I'm actively engaging with on a daily basis. So, you know, things continue to morph and evolve. And I think that that's really important that they do. Um, yeah. So, you know, it, it, create space for second books and, and further books down the road with, uh, you know, more sort of evolved arguments. But definitely, you know, I don't even necessarily agree with every single thing that I say in the book. Um, but I do think that the the fundamental points are really salient. And I hope that other people agree. But yeah, there's there's many possible ways to, to sort of, you know, deconstruct the argument. <laughs> yes, well, perhaps, perhaps we'll we'll disambiguate what you consider to be the fundamental points from some of the things you, you'd be willing to, I suppose, you do consider to be supplementary, perhaps. But first, you write in the acknowledgments, writing a book is truly no simple task. And th this being your first book, and it covering, as it does, well, you're trying to address quite, quite big questions, quite yeah. civilization level questions, and you follow a four part medical style outline, beginning with a diagnosis, which in itself is, is, is a huge task, you, you attempt to describe some causes and conditions, or as you sometimes put them in the book, comorbidities, <laughs> yeah. and, and then prognosis, uh, and then treatment, what should we do about about your diagnosis. So you take I mean, that's, that's quite a lot of, that's, that's quite a lot of ground to cover. So yeah. I'm curious, how did you come to write the book? Could you perhaps talk a bit about what was the process of how this book came to be? Yeah, so I mean, I've, I've wanted I've wanted to write a book for a long time, and I've written some long form like textbooks and things like that in the past. And I, you know, I wanted to sort of, you know, do it and, you know, try to actually uh, get a book out of me. And I had originally intended really to, to speak more about Tibetan Buddhism, Tibetan medicine, and specifically like spirit ontologies within the Tibetan sort of milieu. And this is, you know, a very central area of focus for me academically. It's what I'm doing my master's dissertation on. It's what I'm planning on doing a PhD on. So that's sort of the main area of interest uh, for me. And it has been for a really long time. But as I started writing, and that was really, you know, a significant part of the proposal as well for Hay House, and also for a previous publisher that I had been talking to uh, before the pandemic hit. And then once that hit, everything got sort of, you know, um, it went tits up, as they would say here in the UK. And uh, I ended up uh, talking to Hay House, which I'm really glad that I did, because I had a great experience working with them. Um, 
but as I started writing and, you know, sort of contemplating this idea of unseen beings and the significance of unseen beings and our engagements with them, I really became a lot more drawn into a more sort of naturalistic approach to things. I think climate anxiety and a recognition of the seriousness of our circumstances and the necessity for people from many different backgrounds and in many different fields to turn their attentions towards the environment and our relationships with so-called nature. Um, recognizing the importance of that really forced me to expand my horizons a little bit, but also the research itself just opened up, you know, more and more doors into different areas of study and different, um, you know, sort of specific contours of the more than human world that I hadn't really fully explored previously. So the book kind of, you know, ended up writing itself to a certain extent. Um, I, I still talk about unseen beings in a more sort of classical sense as in like, you know, spirits, nature spirits in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition and in Tibetan medicine and so on, but they comprise a fairly small portion of the book. I came to sort of recognize that the unseen beings that I really wanted to talk about aren't the beings who are invisible. You know, they're not unseen because we can't see them. They are unseen beings because we don't recognize them as beings. You know, we can look directly at a tree or a plant or a mushroom and so on, and we can see them with our senses. We can look at their colors and their shape and their, their you know, sort of physical form, but we can completely miss the fact that they're also a being, that they are a person of their own kind. So they are the unseen beings. They're the ones who I argue are really the most important because the destruction of those beings in particular is the, the sort of, you know, the foundation of our current climate crisis, the so-called Anthropocene, if we want to call it that. Uh, so trying to understand why they became unseen uh, became a very important question for me. And uh, that was, you know, that's the subtitle of the book, How We Forgot the World is More Than Human. And I had help from Hay House coming up with that subtitle. But as soon as it was determined, that really sort of solidified uh, precisely what I was doing. That made everything a lot clearer. Uh, it was trying to make sense of why we constructed our world as it is, as we think of it and see it today. Why did we choose or why were we forced to unsee all of those other beings with whom we share this planet? So, I mean, that was sort of the process. There were a lot of little keys and, and influences that came into it. COVID itself was a significant influence. I really started writing this uh, a bit more in earnest during the pandemic. And I, I mean, you know, part of the, the motivation was seeing countless conversations about COVID, about the causes of COVID, about, you know, all of the various social dynamics and the political dynamics and medical dynamics and so on. But there were so few conversations being had about the ecological and environmental components of the crisis. Uh, there was very little discussion about the very direct links between emerging zoonotic infections and climate desecration, uh, our transgressions against this, you know, sort of boundaries of nature. And I found that to be really disturbing. You know, there were a lot of folks on, you know, on both sides, so to speak, but, you know, in very well-intentioned, you know, environmentalist sort of spheres saying, oh, you know, it's, it's you know, annoying that we keep talking, there's so much energy and so much money going into uh, dealing with COVID. Why can't we take that same energy and direct it towards the climate? 
And I found that a bit frustrating because they are not entirely separate issues. This is a manifestation. It's a part of, you know, the, the progression of our chronic disease. And dealing with it in that way would allow us to be able to deal with the more fundamental issue at the same time. But we really avoided that conversation pretty entirely. So I wanted to make sure that I addressed that in the book. I wanted to talk about, you know, understanding the climate crisis, understanding the Anthropocene, trying to deconstruct and critically, you know, sort of analyze the concept of the Anthropocene, uh, but then to try to get to, you know, why did this happen? I think that's a really important step in the process, as well as, of course, the sort of treatment. But, you know, for me, we can't even begin to approach a treatment for our disease if we don't even clearly understand where it came from, what are its causes and conditions. If we don't understand why it occurred, then we're just going to be putting band-aids on it, and we may very well end up reifying and, you know, uh, doubling down on those same causes, creating further issues in the future. Yes, and if I might summarize to an extent your main argument, it's that you, you start off with the premise that there is climate change happening, and it's bad, and we need to do something about it. And uh, COVID is a symptom of that, a sort of similar symptom from, or rather the cause of climate change, another symptom of that is, is COVID. Uh, and what is that cause? Fundamentally, it's some alienation with the natural world, or uh, the Anthropocene, as you put it, this sort of centering of humans and the othering of, of everything else. And you diagnose that, it seems, as perhaps, perhaps one of the root causes of both the climate change uh, crisis, as you put it, which is your main theme, but also COVID as, a, as, a, as an example of a, another symptom, rather, another, another consequence of that. Yeah. Um, and you make a very interesting point, if I might read that, about the a Tibetan medical view hmm. of the causes of, of epidemics. And you write, during the early days of the pandemic, I noticed that my colleagues in Tibetan medicine, Ayurveda, etc., were actively discussing the links between COVID-19 and climate change, while similar conversations were altogether missing from broader public discourse. In the four tantras of Tibetan medicine, environmentally damaging behaviors like mining, deforestation, and pollution are seen as provocative to the more-than-human world, as they negatively impact the unseen beings around us. When these beings become ill or are otherwise provoked, a variety of human afflictions can be triggered, including epidemic infections. And I recall in the depths of the pandemic, uh, seeing videos and photos of Rinpoche's doing various different rituals to try to appease spirits, basically, or, or various sort of other non-human beings who they felt had been aggravated or agitated in some way, and who had, I suppose, in that sense, uh, for want of a better word, sent COVID as a, as a kind of, um, I suppose, uh, clap back <laughs> to that violation. No. So I wonder if you might talk a bit about that. Some people take that, that view to be rather metaphorical. If mm -hmm. you destroy the environment, negative consequences will occur. It's not so much that there's a tree spirit that's coming after you or a naga that's upset with you. Uh, but other people take it, including it seems perhaps those Rinpoche's that I'm thinking of, very famous ones, take it rather more literally. I wonder where do you sit in that, how do you interpret that kind of a, an approach, the, the interpretation that you're, you're bringing here in, in the book? Yeah, so it's, it's an interesting question, and it really gets to, I think, a more sort of primary point about our, for, for want of a better phrase, the sort of modern 
Western construct of the world, our perception of the world, of so-called nature, of the fundamental divide between humanity and nature and so on. Um, and the way that that differs substantially from virtually every other worldview that has ever existed on this planet. Um, I think it's important to really sort of clearly point out the fact that for the vast majority of human history, the vast majority of human societies have perceived the world as being a vast society of human and non-human beings, a vast array of many different kinds of persons. That very much includes animals, plants, uh, fungi, unseen beings, mountains, rivers, you know, the, the earth itself in some cases, all kinds of different forms of agentive beings, of persons with whom we're in constant relationship. And some of those beings uh, are certainly unseen in a more sort of, you know, proper sense. And of course, in the real world, you know, in the sort of empirical objective world, there are also, you know, myriad unseen beings who have a dramatic impact on our lives, namely microbes, including, you know, bacteria and so on, but also viruses who are quite different because they're not a part of our uh, sort of family of life to the best of our knowledge. Uh, but these are, in fact, unseen beings that inhabit the world. They have their own lives. They have their own intentionality, their own agencies, and we are in relationship with them, and they can pretty dramatically impact our lives in certain ways. Um, so, you know, I wouldn't say that I have an entirely sort of uh, biological naturalistic approach to things. I think that there can be beings who are not necessarily carbon-based life forms who are part of our biological family. But I do think that um, a lot of them in fact are, you know, when we talk about tree spirits, I personally do not buy the notion that a tree spirit is something that is different from a tree, that it's this sort of, you know, um, humanoid anthropomorphic spirit that's, you know, sits in the tree limbs and, uh, you know, they have a certain way that they look and it's very human-like and that they're entirely separate from the tree. Uh, I, I think that a tree spirit is simply the minded person that is embodied in the tree, uh, that it's just a, a sentient tree. It's another way of sort of perceiving a sentient tree. We have a difficult time making sense of this fully because we have, saying we in specifically sort of modern Western ontological structures, we generally believe that the natural world, as we perceive it, the physical world is disenchanted. It's It can strictly be explained through mathematics. It's strictly physical. It's a physical domain. There is no spiritual element to it. And it is a disenchanted domain. So then on that basis, we imagine that there's this other dimension, this other dimension of being, which is a more mystical spiritual world, which is separate. So we can say, oh, well, there's the tree the tree is just a tree. But in this other dimension, there's a tree spirit that you can engage with in this certain sort of spiritual mystical way. And but these are entirely different things. And this is really quite out of step with most traditional societies. This isn't the way that most people have related with, you know, spirits and with a spirited natural world throughout history. Uh, there's been, you know, a, a direct understanding that the physical world itself is the magical domain. That is the mystical dimension. Uh, it's not that the natural world is disenchanted and that there's another enchanted world. It's that that argument to begin with, that presupposition is nonsense. The physical world, the natural world is itself already enchanted. It is already personed. It's already in possession of many different kinds of magical agents of different kinds of beings that we are in relationship with. So, and sort of placing myself on the spectrum, I I would 
I would say that I don't really align with either of them. I very much reject the idea that these concepts are strictly allegorical, that they're just symbolic. Um, I really struggle with the idea that spirits are projections of human emotional states and afflictive mental states and so on. Uh, that's a very psychologized, disenchanted narrative that only emerged in the past couple hundred years. Uh, but I also wouldn't say that the spirit domain is this sort of supernatural world uh, that's, you know, entirely separate from our physical reality. I think it's it's quite different than that. I would align more with an animistic perspective, which is why I mean, the book is is fundamentally arguing for a return to a more animistic point of view and an animistic relationship with the world around us. How would you answer, I think, the common view that enchantment, if you like, the enchantment of, of nature and the, if you like, uh, personification of certain forces such as, you know, I don't know, Cupid, for example, or, you know, Thanos or something like that, um, is pushed back as understanding about real understanding, let's say it that way, you know, scientific uh, materialism kind of understanding that the sort of myths and uh, spirits and panpsychism or uh, as an animistic view is in some ways uh, what one has until one understands better. And it's, in other words, a placement that's the God of the gaps argument, essentially, I'm trying to make rather poorly, I think the God of the gaps argument that this sort of thing is is fine for things that we don't understand, and it's fine to relate to it on a, on a kind of a narrative, in a narrative way or a metaphorical way, but it ought to be replaced with a more, um, a more rational, a material understanding, and is inevitably, inevitably is. Child mortality rates have gone down with the improvements in this view, and so has myth, and those things uh, child mortality rates being high and uh, mythic, um, if you want, or animistic uh, views uh, should, should uh, it's not the baby with the bathwater, they're both bathwater. What do you make of that kind right. of a, that kind yes. of a... I mean, this is a classic uh, sort of colonial argument against animism as a primitive form of, of religion, primitive sort of superstition. This was Tyler's argument uh, in sort of the early days of... Um, of anthropology, trying to understand how religion evolved. And, and his argument was essentially that animism was the original religion. That was the primary um, delusion of humanity. It was the primary superstition, which then later devolved into other forms of religion, uh, but that it was sort of the primary one and that it represents primitiveness. It represents a lack of understanding of the nature of the world. And that was then used to justify colonization of indigenous peoples around the world saying, well, if they can't understand the difference between a person and a thing, then they can't possibly be left in control of their own affairs. Therefore, we need to colonize them and you know civilize them with our you know, proper sorts of ways of viewing the world. And I think this is quite a problematic argument for a lot of reasons, one of which being that it is fundamentally anthropocentric. We don't do, we don't go through these sorts of processes with human beings. We are animals. We are no different from animals. We are absolutely animals ourselves. We are also motivated by biological impetuses, impetuses, <laughs> by biological motives, by our genetics, by our, you know, circumstances, our responses to certain stimuli. Uh, we are very much physical, biological organisms, just like anyone else. But for a very long time, we've been very comfortable 
comfortable reducing everyone else to a mere biological machine, while we recognize the human and the human mind with our rational human soul, to quote Plato and Aristotle and later Descartes, as um, better than that, as more evolved, more superior, as more uh, sort of enchanted and magical and spiritual with this entirely other dimension of being, which is superior to absolutely everyone else. And this is, of course, a, a ludicrous argument. Animals are no more driven by pure instinct than we are. Everyone makes their choices in life. Everyone makes decisions on the basis of the data that they take in and the ways that they you know, uh, sort of compare that against past experience in order to make decisions. Uh, but we are all information processing organisms. That is all of us, humans, animals, plants, fungi, microbes, all of us are information processing organisms. So the basic argument that, you know, an animist saying that a tree is a person is problematic, that isn't true. That's just comparing that against a sort of disenchanted narrative which emerged only in the Western world, only in relatively recent past, and then saying, well, you can't possibly believe that because it's ludicrous, when in reality, our perception that only human beings have any sort of internal experience, any sort of subjectivity, is itself quite ludicrous. Uh, Bruno Latour made a great comment about this. I wish I could quote it directly. Um, but basically that, uh, uh, I can't remember what it was. Um, but essentially that that the recognition of many forms of personhood that is the the most primary perspective that is the basic point of view which is probably shared by everyone you know when your dog goes and sniffs a cat it's very much almost absolutely the case that the dog is perceiving the cat as another kind of being they aren't canine centric thinking that only dogs exist and that everyone everyone else is some sort of sort of biological machine they recognize that it's another kind of person another kind of being with whom they're in relationship uh, and this is the basic way of sort of perceiving the world animism is not something that really was developed it pre-exists all other constructs that we identify as being spiritual or religious. Animism predates the belief in deities, it predates ancestor worship, it predates shamanism as we understand it in an anthropological sense, uh, it predates any other sort of religious construct that we have. And for that reason, I think it's more realistic and, and you know, modern anthropologists would make this argument as well when talking about new animism. It's it's not a, a worldview per se, or it is a worldview, but it's not a religion or a belief system per se. It's a way of relating with other kinds of beings. It's a basic recognition that more than humans are persons. Persons aren't just human. There's many different kinds of persons. Uh, and this is entirely in line with what we know scientifically to be true. And that was really one of the areas that really impacted the, the direction that the book took uh, was research in the field of so-called plant neurobiology, folks like Stefano Mancuso, Monica Gagliano, et cetera, uh, who really are studying the intelligence of plants, the ability for plants to make decisions, to retain memories, to communicate, uh, their multi-sensory capacity, their existence as information processing organisms. And really plants are tremendously more complex and more agentive than we ever, not ever, than we in the West have acknowledged or accepted for a very long time. So once we you know, recognize that the data is actually pointing us towards this conclusion, we can then look at the colonial era sorts of biases and mentalities as themselves being incredibly uh, ridiculous and, and deeply entrenched in uh, 
really in, in most cases antiquated dogmatic sorts of paradigms that in a lot of cases weren't even intended to be absolute statements about the nature of the world, but just kind of philosophical noodlings that someone ended up preserving and taking too seriously. So the answer, your answer to the God of the Gaps argument is animism is better because it's older and because of, of colonialism. Not necessarily. It is the, the argument that animism is primitive is just a colonial argument that doesn't have any scientific validity and it certainly doesn't have any sort of, you know, sociological legitimacy. It's just ethnocentric ideology that was then used to justify the, you know, uh, exploitation and, um, you know, decimation in many cases of other ways of being. The concept that humans are the only beings with any intrinsic value and that everyone else can just be classified as resources, that really specifically benefits the, the humans that want to exploit those resources for their own wealth. But we have no reason scientifically to believe that there's any truth to that. Uh, we are not by any sort of objective standard superior to anyone else. Those kinds of hierarchical constructs are not scientific constructs, they're philosophical constructs. And we can look at the history of that philosophy over time and see specifically how it arose and in which context and to which ends. Um, but it's not a, a legitimate sort of scientific perspective. We can't say that that is more objectively true than an animistic perspective. What I would push back against is the idea that animism especially, but that many forms of more sort of traditional spirituality were constructed to explain the unknown. Animism arises through relationship and experience, through actually having a lived experience of being in relationship with many different kinds of persons. When you do that, even in the modern world as a secular sort of, you know, scientifically oriented person, you see the personhood of those beings. You know, if you have a, a dog or a cat, you get to know them as persons. You get to understand their personalities, their their ways of being, uh, you know, their, their sort of individuality as beings. But we, because of our pre-existing philosophical constructs, we have a hard time sort of allowing that to reach its fullest conclusion, which is that all beings have their own intrinsic value, we could say, or their own experience of being, their own subjective personhood. Uh, so I, I don't necessarily think that that's entirely the case. I would also, is, is in regards to like God's polytheism and so on, um, it, it reminds me of a statement that was made by J.R.R. Tolkien uh, in his essay on fairy stories. I talk about him quite a bit in the book. Uh, there's a whole chapter mostly dedicated to him. Um, but he talks about the fact that, you know, we tend to think that, you know, the Olympian gods and, and various pagan gods and so on are personifications of natural sort of things, natural objects or natural processes. And he says that this is actually the truth somewhat upside down. Uh, it's not, you know, when we make that argument, we take as a basic assumption underlying it that nature is not enchanted. Nature is just, uh, you know, a sort of, you know, assort assortment of all kinds of things and objects and physical phenomena, which don't have any sort of spirited value themselves. So we have to personify them in an enchanted form through our myths and legends and so on in order to be able to relate to them as persons. But that personhood is itself arrayed by 
humans. And our, our mentality is that it must be arrayed by humans. We must be the ones to determine that someone is a person. This is part of the reason that we're able to relate with dogs and cats as individuals who have intrinsic value, but we don't do the same thing for cows and pigs because it's us that determines who's a person and who's not a person. But he argues that this is really upside down. You know, Neptune or Poseidon or Ulmo for that matter, is not a personification of the ocean. The ocean is the physical embodiment of Ulmo, of Poseidon, of Neptune. The person, the agentive person, the enchanted being is more primary than the physical disenchanted thing that we think we're relating to. So myths and legends and fairy stories and mythopoeic fantasy and so on, they aren't taking us further away from the natural world. They're taking us deeper into it to be able to recognize that there are other kinds of persons embedded in these processes. We can't reduce nature for instance, to any one thing. You know, we think about mother nature or the personification of nature and so on. But that's based on the assumption that nature is this thing out there that's separate from humanity. And it's this undifferentiated sort of collective whole that we can relate to as just a single thing. Oh, it's nature. That's a very limited ideology that really hasn't been shared by most human societies throughout history. Most societies have recognized that so-called nature is what we are all in. And it's full of many, many, many different kinds of beings. You could never represent nature as any one thing because it is intrinsically um, you know, multivalent. It's, it has many different perspectives and many different manifestations and beings that comprise it. Uh, so yeah, that's, that's what I would say about that. <laughs> oh, very interesting. You know, um, Ian McGilchrist, uh, in his book, books such as Master and the Emissary, he addresses, I think, similar sorts of problems in, in a slightly different way. He has this idea of the left and the right hemispheres of the brain. And his idea is not that one is necessarily good or bad, one being, so, should we say, more mechanistic um, in the way in which you're saying, the other one being intuitive, etc., uh, relational in that sense, in a different sort of sense. And that there's been a sort of dominance of the left if I if I've got my hemispheres correct, the left hemisphere, there's been a dominance culturally, and that's led to, among other things, as you're pointing out, a kind of alienation from nature, and maybe even an alienation from ourselves and each other in a certain sense. And then he calls for a sort of harmonizing of those hemispheres. So in that sense, there would be uh, um, room for, if you like, scientific materialist. Um, analysis uh, on uh, but also it wouldn't be privileged to say say the best or the the final word because there are many things that scientific materialism perhaps can't really speak to for for example right. uh, yeah, it's, it's not... affective affective states so i'm wondering are you calling for a um a return to animism and a leaving of uh, this sort of rational scientific inquiry or like mcgilchrist are you calling for a sort of harmonization between these viewpoints? And if so, how do you propose to harmonize these viewpoints when they're very often at odds with each other? They criticize each other as being wrong. But that happens from both sides, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I would say that I'm much more 
in line with what he's saying as far as a harmonization of these different approaches. And I think that realistically, we've always, that's always been in our interest. And, you know, we have to, I think we always have to be careful, especially getting into any sort of evolutionary biological sort of theories about why humans are the way that we are. Our concept of what like modernity means or what modern humans are like tends to be quite ethnocentric in and of itself. Um, most human societies have disagreed with our basic premise about the nature of nature uh, and have disagreed with it for a very long time. It's only in the past 500 years that Western sort of, you know, ideologies surrounding the disenchantment of nature and anthropocentrism have been uh, exported en masse to the entire rest of the world. And that was done for a lot of reasons, partially to really silence any dissenting views in the pursuit of, you know, primitive accumulation of resources and, you know, private ownership of, of you know, places and resources and, and beings and so on, uh, to try to get rid of other ways of living and existing in the world. And, I, I I wouldn't say that, you know, even today, there are many different indigenous communities around the world that maintain their more traditional animistic sorts of approaches to the beings around them who still live, I won't say in harmony with nature, because it's not really about being in harmony with some other undifferentiated nature. But there are still many people around the world that identify themselves as part of a more than human world, and they recognize their position within that as a relational position. They are in relationship even with animals that they hunt and so on. They recognize the personhood of those animals while at the same time having sometimes you know, violent relationships with them. So it isn't really that all humans are any particular way. Uh, it's really a matter of the worldviews and philosophical constructs that we've established, and specifically the worldviews that have been, you know, sort of acted as the foundations for the institutions and the systems that we currently have. Though I think it's a bit of an easier fix than, you know, trying to sort of hack our brains or trying to, you know, impact our, our biology on some level, which I'm not saying that that's what he's saying. Uh, but it does require us to deconstruct some of our pre-existing assumptions about the world and to think about things in a different way. Uh, so on that basis, I am a firm believer in the um, the profound benefits of a lot of scientific developments, especially in medicine. Um, I, you know, by saying that we need to return to a somewhat older way of thinking or seeing the world that in no way requires us to abandon empiricism it doesn't need we don't need to abandon you know the benefits of modernity but with those benefits come a lot of detriments come a lot of uh comes a lot of alienation a lot of basic misery uh our lives are less rich they're less fulfilling they're less um you know fundamentally enjoyable i suppose they're they're less uh less fulfilling than than they once were for a lot of people in some very specific ways i think the the experience the idea that we are alone in the world and that everyone else is just our resources and that the meaning of life is to figure out how to manage those resources in the right way because it's our responsibility as humans that's not a very compelling story in my opinion it's not very realistic and it's also incredibly alienating it's incredibly incredibly uh, sort of disenchanting at its basis. You know, I saw an article from last August in um, The American Scientist, I don't remember the author, uh, that's talking about like the search for extraterrestrial life. And in the first paragraph, she writes, 
I think this is verbatim. She says, given the math, it seems impossible that human beings would be the only living things in the cosmos. And it's one of those lines that you can read it once and be like, oh, that makes sense. There's probably extraterrestrials out there. But then you read it again and you realize, oh, my God, does anyone actually think that human beings are the only living things in the cosmos? Where I'm not even the only living thing in my room. I'm not even the only living thing in my body. Uh, how can anyone actually make that that argument? But it's not just a slip of the tongue. It's not just a, a sort of an issue of semantics. That is the world that we have constructed for ourselves. We've constructed it through philosophical worldviews, through religious worldviews, and then ultimately through the scientific paradigms that emerged from those contexts. But the scientific method itself doesn't require that kind of fundamental philosophical assumption. You know, there's there's a lot of research being done now, for instance, in like animal experimentation in a scientific context. For a very long time, we've basically treated you know, mice as interchangeable. One mouse is the same as the other mouse, same as the other mouse. And those mice are generally um, you know, a good uh, sort of indicator of mice in the wild and how all mice will respond to certain things. But researchers now are recognizing that one, mice are individuals. Each mouse is going to be different from the other mice because they are their own persons. And also that they are impacted by their circumstances. You can't study a mouse who's kept in horrific conditions and tortured on a regular basis as any sort of an indicator of how a mouse in the wild might behave. So how can we make any sorts of, uh, you know, sort of broad sweeping judgments about the nature of other beings if we can't recognize their individuality? We recognize our own individuality because we tend to be anthropocentric, but we need to take that ability to recognize human individualism, individual, you know, personal lived experiences, and we need to recognize that that is very much also the case for non-human beings. So I don't think there's any... I don't think there's any fundamental discrepancy between the scientific method and an empirical, rational approach to the world that we live in and a more enchanted approach to the world that we live in. That is the natural way to, to understand it. If you, you know, read about plant neurobiology or fungal intelligence or, uh, you know, slime molds making decisions, that is enchanting. We don't have to accept that the natural world, the real world, the physical world is disenchanted. That's one of the great successes of, you know, sort of, um, you know, Western uh disenchantment sort of uh, disenchanted ontologies it's convincing people that that basic assumption is true and everyone kind of accepted that in the like euro-american world without questioning it too much that's how we got these movements like uh you know Jungian analysis or spiritualism theosophy etc they arise from the acceptance of that basic argument that the physical world is disenchanted and that the human mind is enchanted. The human mind is the domain of mystical spiritual experiences. Everyone sort of just accepted that assumption. So you end up with spiritualists who believe that you know there's a spiritual dimension that's separate from the physical world, filled with primarily human ghosts, because we also tend to think that you know spiritual beings must be a, a function of the human. They can't be animal ghosts, can't be plant ghosts, can't be nature spirits. They have to be human ghosts. Uh, but this idea of a separate sort of dimension that's out there somewhere, which is the spirited domain. Uh, uh, that's, you know, a consequence of accepting this assumption, which was really a part of the backbone of modernity. But 
we don't have to accept that. You know, a real movement towards re-enchantment doesn't try to create enchantment somewhere else. It's really about reclaiming the, the enchantment that is intrinsic in our lived experience of the world, in the other beings that we have relationships with. Uh, we can have both at the same time. There's really no problem with it. Yeah, sp speaking of sweeping generalizations, I, I think perhaps a, a more precise takeaway from the, the point you made about mice, um, research mice, is not that no one mice can tell us anything about any other mouse. I mean, surely that's not the case, but that mice in captivity may have unexpected uh, their captivity, for example, and their, um, the, the circumstances of their captivity may have unexpected, may differentiate them in unexpected ways from the larger body of mice. And so that certain things we may take to be true about all mice from the research mice, much of it will hold, but maybe some of it won't, maybe a lot of it won't. What are the differences between mice in captivity and, um, and mice in the wild? There's this sort of tension, I suppose, between, yes, we're all individuals and there's individual variation. But on the other hand, we can make general statements with the proviso that there are individual differences about people. So I think if we're going to proceed in these sort of civilizational level questions, we have to be more precise, I think. We can't very well accuse scientific materialism, for example, of making sweeping generalizations and then make sweeping generalizations ourselves. I, I mean, I don't think I made any sweeping generalizations about that. I, I'm making the point that, that even though mice of a certain species and subspecies may be biologically similar to one another, and we can study their biology, certainly, and, you know, take that as information about other mice. We do this for humans as well. But as far as their lived experience, the decisions that they make, their psychological states, those are going to be much more individualistic than we have generally given them credit for, specifically because we identify personality we identify decision making agency will you know whether free or not as being a really human thing other beings we've generally just deemed to be biological uh instinct driven machines uh which is part of the reason why we've allowed ourselves and we've considered it entirely morally justifiable or even amoral uh to abuse them torture them kill them with moral impunity because we don't really think of them as being persons in any in any way uh they're simply by biological machines that we can study and pick apart pick apart and you know try and learn more about their their entire beingness uh, but they they have individual characteristics as well absolutely uh, and a lot of the studies of mice we're not just studying them biologically and their responses to certain drugs and so on we're, we're studying their behavior and that's a dangerous thing to do when you're studying an animal who is in incredibly stressful and difficult painful torturous circumstances and think that we're learning anything about anything other than an animal who is being tortured and is incredibly miserable. So, yeah, I mean, I, I, I agree that we can't make sweeping generalizations about, um, about scientific processes, but we have certainly generally, as a, a basic assumption underlying our sort of scientific investigations of the world, uh, we have assumed anthropocentrism as a fact, uh, that humans are the ones who are conscious, who are agentive, who make decisions and have psychology, and other animals are just essentially, you know, instinct-driven machines. 
And I'm not saying that all scientists believe this. This is why a lot of researchers are specifically trying to, you know, better understand this. But, you know, this has been the way that we viewed the world for a very long time. Yes, or at least that to the extent to which that view is held, it alienates us from nature. It alienates us from nature. It alienates us from from other beings. It alienates us, yeah, from nature. I mean, nature is an interesting thing because nature, you know, in a lot of languages, non-European languages around the world, there, there's no word for nature. Uh, nature means a lot of different things. We use this term nature to refer to sort of individual natures. Uh, it's my nature to be this way. It's, you know, the nature of a, a highlighter to, to, you know, make things brighter. Uh, you know, we, we use nature in that way. But then somewhat more recently, we started using it also to refer to the, the vast collective of non-human uh, environments and and you know phenomena that are outside of us, and that concept of nature isn't a widely shared universal idea. You know, if you look at a lot of different cultural and linguistic traditions around the world, there's no term for that kind of nature. Uh, there's sometimes terms for the nature of a thing, the individual nature. But the sort of local nature, the concept of an outer sort of world of, of you know, things that are separate from us, that isn't a widely held uh, concept. That's a very specific philosophical notion. So to be alienated from it requires us to identify it as a thing in the first place. And that is precisely what we've done. We've created this basic divide between human culture and non-human nature. And we have assumed in a lot of different fields, not just in the sciences, but also in the humanities for a very long time until recently, that there is a basic split between human culture and non-human nature, and they don't really intermix. One of the great sort of theories underlying the Anthropocene argument is that that boundary has been dissolved and that sometime either in the past 500 years or the past 200 years or the past 50 years, 70 years, that that boundary has dissolved and suddenly human culture has impacted non-human nature. And that's what we have to fix. But this is really quite a misunderstanding. We have always been uh, a part of nature. We have always impacted the world around us. Non-human beings have always had a very, very significant impact on our cultures, on our societies. They have been members of our societies. We haven't always perceived human societies as being distinct from non-human you know, environments. Uh, that's just a sort of modern construct. And that does alienate us. Uh, it makes us ask ridiculous questions like, you know, are humans alone in the universe? Are we the only living things who exist? Uh, you know, that gives us that sort of existential crisis and also pushes us to completely disregard our treatment of non-human beings. You know, it's not that we think it's morally justifiable to abuse and torture animals, for instance. Uh, it's that we deem it to be amoral. We think that it's entirely a non-issue. There is no reason to even concern ourselves with the morality of things like industrial animal agriculture or animal experimentation, because they're just resources. They're just objects. Uh, Rene Descartes, he was, you know, very famously doubled down on sort of Aristotelian anthropocentrism uh, by trying to demonstrate that non-human animals are just biological machines. They are not, uh, they're not aware of what's happening. They're not conscious. They are entirely just, you know, like animatronic things that you'd see at Disneyland. He didn't say that, but, you know, 
That's essentially how he thought of them. And he demonstrated this literally by, by nailing dogs to boards, nailing their paws to boards in front of a crowd and dissecting them while they were still alive. He did this, apparently, the story is that one of them was his wife's dog, uh, but he wanted to sort of teach her a lesson. So he did this in front of a, a group of people and had people dissect the dog and the dog is screaming and he's telling people, you don't need to worry. What you think you're hearing is the cries of desperation from this animal. It's just a, it's a biological sort of mechanistic, um, you know, response. It's, a, it's an instinctual ingrained response. There is no one actually experiencing suffering. It just looks like they're experiencing suffering. And that ideology is still very much with us. A lot of people still believe this, even though it is entirely scientifically untenable. Uh, there is no possible way that we can construct realistically this idea that humans are the only ones who are conscious and aware, and that everyone else is just uh, a robot. Yes, I think that particular demonstration is a bit of a hard sell. Of course, there is another moral slant on it, uh, it's it's a grey area. And, you know, I admire you in this book for tackling such big questions. And you have to be quite multidisciplinary. And uh, you're looking at moral philosophy, you're looking at history, uh, you're, and, and particular interpretations of that. You're looking at comparative religion. You're drawing in aspects of you know, philosophy and also science and uh, many other things, and, you know, Tibetan medicine and so on. So you're really drawing in from a lot of different areas. I think it's a very ambitious uh, attempt. So I admire you for that. Of course, another, uh, you know, I, I, this is not, I'm not representing my view here, but another philosophical, if you like, or moral uh, approach to animal testing. If we think of animal testing, if you call it abuse and torture of animals, that's, that's one way of describing it. Another way of describing it might be, well, we're going to do some things to this mouse here. And what we get out of that may save millions of lives. You know, we might, we're going to develop a, a polio vaccine or whatever the case may be. Some of that was done with animal testing, for example. Um, so it's that old moral question of if you have a train track going, to, a train cart going down the tracks and you can pull the lever and it goes to one side and kills one, or on the other side it kills 10, is it immoral to kill the one to save the 10? Now, you and I are both aware, I think, that that is not a very easy thing to solve. So I think there's nuance in, in, in what I'm trying to bring in here, perhaps, or suggest there might be a little bit more nuance than this kind of rather polarizing characterization of, of science as sort of torturing animals and, and this sort of thing. And a rather sort of, now, okay, if you use the Descartes example, sure. But um, there's, there's perhaps a bit more nu nuance to it than, than that. If we're going to go forward, perhaps nu nuance is necessary. Sure. Yeah. And I mean, I, I think there's I think there's quite a difference between animal testing for developing life saving medications versus animal testing for cosmetic products uh, and for other, you know, consumer goods. Uh, I mean, there is a fundamental fundamental difference in, far, in in terms of utility and sort of the end result of it. Um, what I think is really problematic and I am I'm not necessarily saying, well, if it has a good purpose, then who cares? At the end of the day, I, you know, <laughs> I, I would say in general, it is better to have a consenting test subject than it is to have a non-consenting test subject for anything because a non-consenting test subject is being exploited against their will uh, to benefit someone else. And if we have a problem with that in certain contexts, then we have to at least question the morality of it in other contexts, namely human and non-human contexts. Um, and 
I mean, what what I have the fundamental problem with is not the question of moral justification. It's the dismissal of the moral dimension of those behaviors at all. I think it's a lot easier to sort of see this clearly when we talk about like industrial animal agriculture as opposed to scientific testing for vaccines, um, because I don't really want to get into the, the muddy waters of uh, analyzing the ethics of of things like that though i again i do think that having willing uh you know mm -hmm. uh, human volunteers who can consent to their their own sort of use in this context is morally superior but it's really about the the problem the problem with the way that we do things especially with like animal agriculture and animal testing it's not that we deem it to be morally justifiable we deem it to be amoral when it comes to animal agriculture there's a very common belief that there is no moral dimension to how we feed ourselves we don't need to it's not a moral problem it's just a problem with how we sustain our lives and that's incredibly problematic and deeply anthropocentric because we don't have that mentality when it comes to humans if you if you're a cannibal and you eat other humans no one's going to say well it's just how you sustain yourself as long as you're eating them then there's no moral dimension to it it's that we found a way to exclude all non-humans from the sphere of moral um moral value of moral concern that's the fundamental problem Obviously, in animistic societies across the world throughout history, hunting has been a very common practice. But as I said earlier, hunting is generally practiced with the presupposition that the animals that are being hunted are also other kinds of persons. And that's very self-evident in the ways that these hunting procedures are, are undertaken. There's hunting rituals, there's hunting magic, there's different forms of seduction, of communication. All kinds of different paradigms exist to really acknowledge acknowledge the agency and personhood of the animal that's being killed. And then after an animal is killed, in many traditions, there are different kinds of funerary procedures, different kinds of, you know, ceremonial rites, which are which are done in order to benefit specifically that animal, not to give thanks to some god or something, but to really be in relationship and, and to engage with the animal who has died in order to sustain the human population. So that's a very different dynamic from what we have today, which is that it doesn't matter what you do to animals you should maybe try to at least make it look not too dramatic but behind closed doors no one really cares too much uh, because they're just resources they're objects they are intended to be food that is their purpose we've been eating them for a very long time so their purpose is to be food they're not persons they don't have feelings they don't have desires they don't have agency so we can kill them and we can abuse them with moral impunity it's not a moral problem we don't need to justify it in the first place because it's a it's a non-issue this is a, a very significant part of sort of the mainstream ideology surrounding our treatment of non-humans in certain cultural contexts. But with global capitalism, this is pretty, you know, broadly accepted to be the case. Uh, there are exceptions to this. I'm not making a, you know, a single sort of, you know, broad stroke judgment about every single person in the world that, that engages in animal agriculture who eats animals. Uh, but I, that's the sort of nuance that I'm trying to deal with is not so much whether we should or should not do these certain things. It's about the recognition that if we do choose to do these things, we have to still acknowledge that there is a person who is experiencing the things that we are doing to them. They're not unconscious, they're not unaware, they're not just a resource or an object or a test subject. They're also an individual. 
much like we are. So with that understanding, we can make better choices about the ways that we actually treat them and engage with them and the ways that we consider their welfare in those circumstances. Yes, it's a bit of a freshman point in a way, I think. Um, if I was to say to you, the point I'm about to make is a bit of a freshman point, that um, if uh, how many mice unconsenting, presumably, is it all right to kill, let's say, to derive some sort of medical benefit for, say, millions of, let's say, humans? Uh, mice, my, the, the mouse population as a whole doesn't even get any benefit from it. They, we, oh, it's right. just us, you know. One for ten million humans. <laughs> so it's a bit of a. It's a, or we or we allow the ten million humans to die for the sake of the consent of the mouse. And similarly, if in the hunting, you can have all the magical rituals and animistic views you like, but the deer is not consenting to being speared. They would, they would disagree. A lot, a lot of, a lot of people would disagree with that. A lot of indigenous peoples would disagree with that. You know, specifically, in if you look at like the Rock Cree populations, the Ojibwe, uh, you know, different Na First Nations peoples in North America, their hunting rituals very specifically include an acknowledgement of perceived consent. I would agree with you that they aren't actually consenting to being killed, but that is that is just my view. That's our view. That isn't necessarily a universal view. From their perspective, having lived with these animals for thousands thousands and thousands of years and been in this kind of relationship with them. There's a strong sense that one, um, you, you know, in some contexts, you are only supposed to kill an animal who seems to offer themselves to the hunter. There is also a sense that they offer themselves specifically out of a sense of love and compassion for the humans. Uh, and this is a very important dynamic in that arrangement. It would be deemed inappropriate to sort of come up on a deer unawares and kill them without their so-called consent. You see the same thing in animal sacrifice rituals in places like India and Nepal, which of course, you know, Westerners tend to have this very averse reaction to. We think animal sacrifice is so horrifying. But in most places in India and Nepal, if an animal is sacrificed, that animal is then also consumed. But the process of sacrifice in a place like Dakshin Kali involves a process of, you know, sprinkling rice water onto the back of a goat. And if they shake it off in a certain way, then that's deemed to be them consenting to being slaughtered. Uh, again, I'm not saying that the goat is actually consenting to that, but it is an ingrained part of the cosmological ontological structures of those societies that the animals are willful participants in the process. They are not being exploited against their will. I'm not saying this is always the case, but it is a very important point, I think, that does need to be made. The, the, the assumption that an animal cannot consent to something, that they are incapable of making an agentive decision to be a part of a certain process, I think that's really doing them a disservice. I don't necessarily think that they are consenting to being killed, but I am very much open to the possibility that they could consent to something of that sort because of their personhood, because of their, their agency. Yes, I mean, if I pat my dog, I know whether or not he'd like to be patted, so we could say yeah. that. But on the other hand, if I hunt my dog, <laughs> absolutely. Again, so I'm not. I think hunting is perhaps a, a bad example. I mean, if we sprinkle rice water on the mouse before it goes into the lab, or we look to see if it shakes the mouse, the, the water off in some sort of direction, does that does that 
um, does that change the, the situation for you? I, I'm, I'm not saying that we should do that. I, again, I am not saying that that animal is actually consenting. But what I am pushing back on is the notion that, well, you know, in those societies, they're still just killing the animals without their consent. They don't see it that way. They're the way that they have constructed their worldview, that they perceive the world, and which is born out of experience, but their own specific experiences and their own particular relationships with those animals. It's very different from what we impose upon them. It isn't really our place to make that decision for them. But more importantly, it would be a mischaracterization of their own perceptions of their behaviors to say that they are exploiting those animals and killing them just like we are. They can have their beliefs, they can have their stories, but those are just beliefs and stories. It's not actually what's happening. That's a fairly ethnocentric argument for us to make, not necessarily ethnocentric, but it's a modernist argument based on our presupposed sort of, you know, disenchanted world, which is fundamentally anthropocentric. That isn't shared by most societies around the world. Uh, I think hunting is actually a, a pretty good example of this because there is a world of difference between the kinds of practices that take place in that context and those that take place in our context. If you perceive the personhood of deer or bison or reindeer and, and so on, then you are naturally going to have a different kind of relationship with them. Uh, it isn't just shoot all of the deer that you can possibly find because more is better. It's specifically recognizing they are persons. We need to be careful with how many of them we, we claim how many of them we kill. We need to take care of their bodies. We need to help them move on to their next incarnations, which are often perceived in a lot of societies to be a reincarnation system within their species. So to take care of them, to be good uh, you know, neighbors and good uh, interlocutors of theirs, uh, we need to engage with them in this way. It's a part of their more than human sociality, which is entirely different from our approach in which we deem all of these animals to just be unconscious uh, things, resources that can be exploited and abused and, and you know, killed with absolute impunity. We don't even need to consider that. Uh, but I, I think they are fundamentally different ways of, of viewing the world. And that's what I'm really interested in. You know, that's how we forgot the world is more than human. I'm not interested in making some sort of a moral argument for we should do this and we shouldn't do this. It's not about some God or some, you know, supernatural sort of existential set of rules that we have to follow. It's about relationship. It's about recognizing our position in relationships. You know, the, the question of the mice. I, I'm not prepared to make a decision on behalf of the mice or on anyone's behalf for how many mice we should be allowed to kill in order to save X number of humans. From the mouse's perspective, they probably don't want to die for this for saving any humans. Maybe they do, but we have no way of knowing that, in my opinion. Maybe in some traditions there could be some sort of way of doing that. Um, but you know, it's it's more of a question of the relationship from the human who from a person whose life will be saved by some life-saving medication that's been developed with a mouse, it's it's worth it from their perspective, probably. From the mouse's perspective, it's not worth it. That's a relationship that we are all in. Um, but again, with animal testing, I think it's a, it's becoming a bit of a moot point because of the advancements in science and, and technology, which have allowed us to grow organs and petri dishes to be able to resemble human um, human cells and, and tissue more exactly. There's a lot that we are now able to do and will be able to do without the abuse of animals, which I do I do think that it is in many cases abuse. Not always. Not every form of animal testing is necessarily abusive. Um, but it is in a lot of them, you know, really circumstances that we would find absolutely unfathomable uh, if it were done to a human. And certainly it's unpleasant for those animals as well.
Yes, I think it's the moral element aspect is is unavoidable, really. And um, even in what you said there, there are so many moral conundra that I think in some senses you're glossing over and other, other cases you're taking a position, which is perfectly fine. Uh, the moral gray areas are, um, well, they're gray for a reason. Certainly your point that seeing the world as simply a sort of resource to be exploited can get out of control. Of course, also perhaps if one sees the world as a, as a resource that, to be exploited, uh, the means of one's sustenance, one, that be, could also perhaps cause one to say, gosh, if, these, if this is what it is, if it's a, a resource to be used, I better steward that resource because it's not just me, it's many, many others coming after me. So I'm not, I'm not convinced that the, um, that animism is necessarily. I'm not saying that animism is a panacea for all the world's ills. Uh, I do think that it is specifically an important antidote to the instrumentalist sort of ideology that all non-humans are unconscious resources that we are free to exploit at our own will. Um, there's just no logic behind that argument to begin with. The, you know, the, the assumption, that's just anthropocentrism, pure and simple. Anthropocentrism is not a universal concept. It's not a scientific concept. It's a philosophical notion that came out of a very specific set of cultural and historical circumstances. Uh, but I mean, it, I just, I don't- uh, So is animism. Yeah, but is it? <laughs> Isn't it? Animism pre predates every single other spiritual construct that humans have ever devised. It is the oldest way of viewing the world, and not oldest in the sense that it is the most primitive. It's the most organic. It's the most foundational. Animism is simply the acknowledgement that there are other kinds of persons that inhabit our world that are not human. I think that's a fairly low bar. That's yeah. I I, I would I wouldn't really put that in the same category as other like belief systems or ideologies. That is essentially all that it is. You don't have to believe in spirits. You don't have to believe in gods. Certainly, you don't have to believe in ancestor worship. You don't have to you know do rituals. You don't have to have certain you know morals and sort of guidelines and so on. It's simply the acknowledgement that there are other kinds of persons that the world is popular populated by human and non-human persons, and thus we are in relationship with them. That's the basic argument of animism. So I do think that that, in fact, is a, a quite reasonable antidote to an instrumentalist system which seeks to exploit all other forms of life, all other so-called resources, usually for the benefit of a very select few. Uh, you know, the great sort of... Uh, problem with the concept of the Anthropocene is specifically the concept of the Anthropos, the concept that there is a single undifferentiated humanity, just like there's a single undifferentiated nature. But historically, it hasn't been that all humans exploit the natural world and exploit non-humans for their own benefit. And that's the arrangement that everyone has. It's been very specific societies, the same societies that have constructed a strictly hierarchical order for the universe uh, with some sort of a master identity sitting at the top and everyone else arrayed below them as, you know, being at their sort of beck and call and being their resources and their, their inferiors. Um, those same societies also sought to colonize and destroy all other forms of life worldwide uh, to try to extend their the sort of reach of their domination. Uh, and that's why we have this sort of construct. But it isn't it isn't universal. And I don't think that these are, you can't really compare them as being similar sorts of things. Uh, this other worldview, anthropocentrism, has very specific roots, very specific historical and cultural context, uh, contextual causes. 
animism doesn't really have that. I would argue that every, you know, my, my cats are animists. It's not that they have a belief system that they buy into, that they believe X, Y, and Z. It's that they perceive the world and other living beings as other living beings. It doesn't mean that they're peaceful in harmony with all of them. That's, you know, the, the sort of noble savage trope, I think, is, is not very useful. But they do recognize that it's relationship. Uh, you know, I don't think my cats are under the delusion that only cats exist and that everyone else is a resource for cats. Um, this is a very specific human idea that comes from a very specific uh, root, and I think we need to to sever that route because this is this is why we are in the predicament that we're in. You know, the climate crisis isn't just a problem of oil. You know, it's not just a problem of of sustainability. You know, sustainability itself is a bit problematic because if you really ask, you know, what are we trying to sustain? The answer is pretty obviously exploitation. You know, that we are trying to sustain the existing construct, the existing system that we have. We don't want to change that. We don't want to have to lose the world that we've created. We want to sustain that. We want to sustain the use of our resources so that humans can use them for a very long time. But our existing systems are fundamentally exploitative, especially in, you know, a sort of global capitalist instrumentalist construct. Uh, it's exploitation that we want to sustain. So we need to problematize that a bit, I think. Uh, if we find a you know a, an eternal source of limitless clean energy, that's not going to stop the climate crisis. That's not going to stop the sixth mass extinction. That's not going to stop our destructive uh, you know uh, impact on the planet. It's just going to make it a bit more sustainable. That's that's really what it's going to do. We can bring our CO two levels down. That's that's great. But deforestation isn't going to stop. Uh, you know the the raising of the Amazon to build feedlots for cattle isn't going to stop just because we have a, a clean source of energy. We're just going to become a lot more uh, efficient in our forms of exploitation. That isn't to say that we don't need to divest from fossil fuels and turn towards clean energy. We absolutely need to do that. But it's about getting to the root cause, not just putting Band-Aids on the symptoms and saying, oh no, don't worry everyone. Progress is great, progress is good. We just needed to fiddle with some of the numbers and do some of the things a little bit differently. But don't worry, the system works fine. That's nonsense. The system itself is exploitative. We need to, to really challenge that. And it exploits more than just non-humans. Human beings have also been massively uh, exploited, colonized, and, and you know decimated, both literally, physically, and culturally, especially over the past 500 years, as a part of this same exact process. You know, the 50 million plus Native American peoples uh, that were killed in just the first 100 years of uh, European colonization of the Americas, they were essentially treated as nature, as resources that can be exploited and killed for the purpose of a certain master identity group claiming dominance and sovereignty over their land as their resource that they can just claim. Yes, I think in reading history, one is bewildered by the how little excuse or justification colonialism or of various types, uh, invasion, genocide. You know, I was re reading recently Sam Van Shake's very fascinating book, The History of Tibet. And uh, that's, a, that's a blood soaked tale yeah. of colonialism and invasion, and so on, often with divine mandate. I think it seems that human beings don't need much excuse or justification, or at least we can come up with lots of very, very elaborate ones that are quite different in different places throughout, throughout time. Including, you, meant, you referenced Thucydides in the book briefly, 
including it's just simply the will to power. It's right, might is right, as as um, as we see in Thucydides being expressed by one of the uh, generals there. So huh. it's uh, it's quite a thing. So I I do admire your attempt. I said it was an ambitious attempt, and that I admire the ambition of it, and I do your attempt to get to the root cause, because like you said, yes, we can look at this solution and that problem, and sometimes we mischaracterize symptoms and we mischaracterize solutions and people have been led astray doing that a great deal of the time but you're attempting to strike to the heart of or the root of uh, of uh, a sort of alienation with nature and what you perceive and you perceive that a, a climate crisis is, is precipitated by that so i think it's very interesting and you're very multidisciplinary in that um drawing in and so i think it's yeah it's, it's ambitious and it's good um a good attempt so thank you very much yeah. For that. An, attempt, being... an attempt indeed, and I, I very much acknowledge that it is an, an attempt. I'm not making any claims for its, you know, absolute veracity or that it, you know, it completely settles the matter. It doesn't. It's really more of a starting point than an ending point in a lot of ways. But if anything, I hope that the book sort of shifts some of the questions that we ask, some of the ways that we frame our problem in the first place, uh, because I think that that's really important. Because uh, even in you know modern environmentalism, environmentalism is still largely dealing with sort of human humanity's centrality, our sovereignty, our superiority to everyone else, and our need to save nature uh, to through our own ingenuity and our own you know pursuit of progress to save nature to create more order uh, so that we can live in some sort of perfect human utopia in the future. And that's really, I think, quite misguided in, in and of itself. The whole sustainability argument, as I just said, is, is a part of that. Uh, so asking different questions, I think, is really essential if we want to actually make it through this. Yeah, I think that's an excellent example, actually, of how your attempt to strike to the root recontextualizes even many of what one, what one, what one would assume are solutions you'd agree with. You're, you're suggesting they're actually founded on um, uh, one or two or three or four layers down a misconception. And yeah. so that's, yeah, that's why I, I, I say it's ambitious, because you're, you're recontextualizing everything or challenging everything and challenging, challenging us to take a fresh look at even, even, should we say, environmentalist fears. Uh, yeah, it's very interesting indeed. Thank you, Eric, for this. And I've enjoyed being somewhat of a foil to you uh, in this interview. Oh, I agree with much of what you've said, but it would be boring if we just agreed. So yeah, I've, I've tried to sort of uh, play Denver's advocate at times, and um, it's been very fun indeed. So Unseen Beings, available now. How We Forgot the World is More Than Human. Eric Jamper Anderson, congratulations on the publication, and thank you very much. Thank you very much for having me. It's been great. Thank you for listening to another Guru Viking podcast. For more interviews like these, as well as articles, videos, and guided meditations, visit www.guruviking.com.